Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter number 26. Matthew chapter 26, and I think everybody knows that we, uh, we've been involved in a study pertaining to the Lord's Supper the last several weeks, and of course, last week was Vacation Bible School, and so we, uh, we missed that, but for a good reason. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the elements of the Lord's Supper. The elements of the Lord's Supper. Let's just read verse 26 down through verse number 30. And I know you're familiar with this, but it always does us good to read it again. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Well, it's very, very easy to see that there are but two elements in the Lord's Supper. But that doesn't mean that everybody agrees on what they mean. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of Dr. M. R. Dehan. Dr. M. R. Dehan is the fellow that started the back to the uh, not the back to the Bible, the radio Bible class, but the daily bread and and uh, of course his his sons and grandsons have carried that on for many years. He was a uh, very astute Bible teacher, a good man, and what have you. But you know, being a good man and a sincere teacher doesn't mean you're right. M. R. Dehan claimed that a banana and water could be properly used for the elements. Well, I don't agree. Others have said, and I mentioned this already, said it's okay if you use potato chips and soft drinks. It doesn't make any difference. So I mentioned that just to show you that there's a great deal of controversy in this area. And so the purpose tonight is for us to consider what the Bible says in regards to the elements. Now, before we get down to actually discussing each element, we need to look at the Lord's Supper as a whole from a couple perspectives. One has to do with what the Roman Catholics teach. They call it transubstantiation. What they claim, what they believe, is that, is that the, the bread and the wine actually becomes the literal flesh and literal blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they teach. And uh, they teach, you know, they make it happen. Now, so you won't get the idea that I am misquoting them, misunderstanding them, falsely accusing them. Let me read something to you from them. This is from the Council of Trent in 1551 A.D. And this is what it says, and this is what they believe. This Holy Synod now declares anew that through consecration of the bread and wine, there came about a conversion of the whole substance of the bread 
into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the vine into the substance of his blood. And this conversion is by the Holy Catholic Church conveniently and properly called transubstantiation. So, I mean, there it is, them telling you exactly what they believe. Now, I'm telling you they're wrong. But not only are they wrong, and this is where a lot of people, you know, get upset. They don't mind you criticizing the Catholics, but they want you to leave the Protestants alone. You know, they think, well, if you're not a Catholic, you've got to be a Protestant, and, you know, and that makes you, you right. But the Protestants, and when I say that, I'm talking about the Anglicans and the Lutherans and so on and so forth, all the Protestant organizations, they believed in what was called transubstantiation, I believe is the way, if I got all of that out correctly. Jennifer's nodding, since she's a teacher, I, I, I get an A on that. But anyway, what, what, what they, they believe, they believe that the literal blood and the literal body Exist. It doesn't become, you know, the 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 bread and the wine, but it actually exists within the bread and the wine. That the elements of his blood and his uh, his flesh are actually in the bread and uh, the the bread and and the wine. Now, all of this comes from a a forced literal translation of the Bible. In other words, they take some verses and say, well, you know, look here at what this verse says. It speaks about his body, you know, uh, his body being the bread and we eat of the bread and so forth. And so they say, uh, you know, that's evidence that, that we're right. What they don't seem to get is the fact that the Bible, although we interpret the Bible literally, the Bible on a great many occasions uses figures of speech. Jesus said, I am the vine. Now, do you suppose for a second that he intended that we believe that he was a literal vine? Or whenever he said, I am I'm the door. That doesn't mean he is a door. You, you can't, can't go around and say, well, that's the door of the church, and so he's the door, you know. So uh, that's, literally, that's literally his body, you see. Uh, they're, they're forcing a literal interpretation to the Scriptures that were intended to be figures of speech. And it, it's quite common. You'll remember Jesus referred to Herod as that old fox, that sly fox, you know. That doesn't mean that that Herod was actually a fox. It means that he had some characteristics that were fox-like. Well, the same thing is true whenever we come to the elements of the Lord's Supper, and uh, and that's what we're going to talk about. First of all, let's consider the bread. Look in verse number 26 again. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, although it's not specifically stated anywhere here, we have reason to believe that this bread was unleavened bread. And we say that because if you, if you remember, the disciples have gathered with our Lord for the purpose, at least in their mind, and all they knew at that point is we're gathering for, for, to observe the Passover. And if you go back to Exodus chapter number 13, you'll see that the Passover required 
unleavened bread. Now, the purpose of that, of course, was that the leaven was typical of sin. In fact, it said not only not only could there not be leaven in the bread in the observance of the Passover, there couldn't be any leaven in the house during that period of time. So the bread is speaking about the body, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that it is unleavened illustrates the fact that he is sinless. There is no sin to be found in him. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we want to remember who he is. John six forty eight. he said, and the bread of life. And then he said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give him is my flesh, which I will give him for the life of the world. Then if you back up to verse 35, you'll remember this statement where he talks about being the bread. He said, if any man eat of this bread, he'll never what? Hunger again. And if any man drink of this water, remember he's the living water, you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. That's why I am so troubled by those people that keep saying, well, you know, yeah, I, I, I know I got saved way back then, but I haven't been sure for the last 20 years. I, I just, I really don't know for sure. I, you know, surely, surely I'm saved. I think probably I'm going to heaven and they, and, and they have all of these doubts. Now I know that Satan can interject thoughts into your mind. As I've often said, you can fall off a horse, hit your head, you won't know what your name is or where your address is. And I understand that. There can be problems of a physiological nature that can cause you to forget things that you, that you knew. I realize that. But it is not normal. It's not natural for a Christian to doubt their salvation. And here's the thing. This is speaking about satisfaction. You eat of this bread, what? You never get hungry again. You drink of this water, you never get thirsty again. And I've got to tell you, since that day that I first trusted Christ as my Savior, I've been satisfied, not with me, but I've been satisfied with my salvation since that day. I've, I've never had a longing to be saved again. I, I've never saw any need to be saved again because I believed that, that God would do what He said that He would do that He would save me if I would trust Him, and I did. And that's why I've said before that, that, and I know I'm always fearful somebody will misunderstand this, but, but I mean it from the depths of my heart. If I don't go to heaven, it's God's fault. Now, I know that sounds kind of scary to make that statement. Believe me, I've thought it through. I've thought it through before I made that statement. It's God's fault if I don't go to heaven, and I say that because I've done everything He required. You say, what do you mean everything He's required? You're not perfect. No, I'm not perfect. But everything He requires for salvation, I've done. I have trusted in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not trusting in anything else And there's nothing, the devil and all of his imps and nothing else that could keep me out of heaven. The only one that could stop me from going to heaven is who? God. He's the only one that could stop me. And since he can't lie, I don't need to worry about that, do I? Don't need to fret for one moment because in hope of eternal life, which the God that cannot lie promised. And so we can rest assured. In eating of that bread, we... Are, we have salvation and satisfaction 
And in him we are secure. Now we go to the fruit of the vine and we're going to spend more time here than and you already know why. But uh, this is where we're going to focus most of our attention tonight. Verse 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, this is the most controversial part of the Lord's Supper, and that is the identity of the liquid in the cup. The identity of the liquid in the cup. Was it fermented wine? Was it grape juice? Does it make any difference? If it makes a difference, what difference does it make? All kinds of questions. And so in the remainder of this message, I want to do two things. Number one, answer some objections. And then, secondly, ascertain the true meaning of the elements. We're going to be heavy on the first part of this that has to do with trying to answer the objections. There might be many more than this, but I jotted down just six things, six objections that we hear from people that insist that the proper element for the Lord's Supper is fermented wine. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that the only term ever used in the Bible in reference to the element in the Lord's Supper is the fruit of the vine. It's the only thing that you ever see mentioned in that regards. The word wine is never used in reference to the Lord's Supper. Never. Now, it could have been, but it never is. It's almost like the Lord knew that we were going to be having this debate all of these years later. And uh, consequently, consequently, he refers to it as the fruit of the vine. Even if it was used, it would not necessitate fermented Wine, the Hebrew word yayin and the the the, the Greek word onus, uh, both of those words refer to the fruit of the vine, and they are what we might call a generic word, in that they can have reference to what is fermented or what is not fermented. So they can use be used in both ways, and in order to understand how it's being used, we have to do what. Look at the context, because you cannot just take the word wine where it's found in the Bible apart from the context and say, well, it has to refer to this or it has to refer to that. So here we go. Objection number one, there is leaven in grape juice and it must be purified by fermentation. So that's the claim that fermentation purifies. I disagree. I say it putrefies. It doesn't purify. It putrefies. And the point is that the grape juice contains uh, contains a certain amount of leaven. That's what we're told. It's that leaven's in there, so we've got to ferment and get that leaven out of there. Wait a minute. What is leaven? It's nothing but fermentation. So you're taking something that you say has a little, a little bit of leaven in it and, and you're going to ferment it and you're going to make it all leaven, so to speak. And uh, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. And, uh, uh, I was trying to think of his name. Uh, 
Davis Huckabee. I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Davis Huckabee, but he, he wrote a, a series of little books on the church years ago. I think they're probably out of print now. I, I, I don't even know where he is. I, I correspond with his son a little bit, but... Anyway, he says the only symbolism required with the phrase fruit of the vine is that of being crushed so that grape, so that its juice might be poured out. The purity of the Lord is symbolized by the unleavened bread, but the scripture is silent as to the fruit of the vine ever symbolizing the purity of Christ's blood, and we go beyond what is written if we insist upon it. So that, that's the first, uh, argument in regards to using wine. The second is that they say, well, the wine always speaks of what is fermented. And believe me, I've, I've been down this road, I can remember, and this is so very personal to me, and I, I'm not at liberty to, to go into detail and explain what I mean by that. But whenever it comes down to creating a divide in your own relatives and and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And someone told me one time, said, but I'm, I wrote this book explaining all of the ways that I'm right and you're wrong. Won't you read it? And I said, no, I won't read it. I, I know what I believe and I know why I believe it. And I know what your book says without ever reading your book. And I'm, I'm not going to waste my time. And, and this person got extremely upset with me, and uh, I probably, if you'd be honest, is to this very day. And so, believe me, the last thing I want to do is hurt anybody's feelings. But I'm telling you, whenever somebody says that any time you see the word wine in the Bible, it has to refer to something that is fermented. That is not true. Whether it is intoxicating, they're fermented and intoxicating or not, again, has to be determined by the context. Number three, they say, well, the grape juice could not be preserved apart from fermentation. That's one of the main arguments they used. In order for them to preserve it, they had to ferment it. Well, in case you've never read the little book, Bible Wines and the Laws of Fermentation by William Patton, and you can probably still get that book today, and he goes into great detail, and, and whenever I say he goes into great detail explaining this, I'm talking about using documentation from, from history. And not, it's not just theory with him. It's going back and actually looking at kind of like Thompson in the land of the Bible, you know, and he went over there and lived among the people and learned from the people and their ways and so forth. And so you can look back and you can... Do your research in regards to exactly how they did what they did in those days. And he has given documented evidence that there are several different ways that grape juice can be preserved without fermentation. And he has documentation for all of his claims. Well, you know, I don't need what he says about that to, to settle this matter in my mind. Uh, but but I, I'm simply I'm simply pointing out that to say that it has to be fermented wine because you have to preserve the grape juice is simply not true. 
And it's very provable, the fact that in some ways they reduced it down to what, I don't know, I would call it a jam or something like that, and then they would add water uh, back to it later on and stir it up and drink it. And he goes into a lot of detail, the different methods they use of dehydration and things of that nature. But but anyway, at least that answers the objection that that it can't be preserved without fermentation. Well, the fourth thing is that, I've heard a lot of times, is that the Corinthians got drunk at the observance of the Lord's Supper. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, I don't know that I would ever use the Corinthians as an example for anything to start with. I mean, they were the most carnal of all of the churches. And even if that was true, even if they actually were inebriated as a result of drinking too much at the Lord's Supper... Even if that was true, there's no no evidence whatsoever that God told them to do it in the first place. And so, you know, that doesn't mean because they did it, it was right. But there's actually no evidence that they were intoxicated because, well, you say, well, the Bible says here that they drunken, but that particular word drunken simply means to be filled. You know, it, it is to drink to the full. It has nothing to do with being inebriated whatsoever. And so you can't take that and and insist that because it says, and they had well drunken before the others got there, that, that they were drinking an alcoholic beverage. That, that's carrying it too far because the Word does not imply that. And if we're not going to follow the meaning of the Word there then why, we might as well throw everything out the window. The word simply means to be filled. They had already eaten to the full, and they had already drunk to the full. They're already full, as it were, before the other people even got there, and they call this the, the Lord's Supper, and they're observing it, supposedly, you know, to honor the Lord, but they're observing it to satisfy their flesh, instead of honoring the Lord and have no consideration for the other members that have not even showed up yet. So, to me, that doesn't hold any water. Well, the next one. Jesus turned water into fermented wine. That's what we're told. And we could, in fact, whenever we had our deacon's training courses and went through this and we spent a lot of time on this issue and I'm not going to I'm not going to spend an hour and so forth trying to go into all of the details as to alcoholic beverages and because this is strictly in pertaining to the Lord's Supper and I don't want to get off you know off track of that. But whenever it says he turned the water into the wine, again, was it fermented wine? Was it grape juice? Was it the fruit of the vine? Uh, being from Texas, most, most of you are, nearly everyone, everybody my age for sure has heard of Sam Morris. Any, anybody never heard of Sam Morris? Really? He was probably, probably next to, uh, probably maybe the, Third most famous preacher ever from Texas. He was the he was a fellow that headed up the National Temperance League, uh, and uh, was right here in Texas. And he was a man that stirred up a hornet's nest like you wouldn't believe. And 
And to, you know, to this, to this day, people despise him. Let me just read something that he wrote in a little, in a little booklet way back when this whole temperance fight was going on. And, and I'm reading this because we don't have time to go into detail on all of it and it'll kind of sum up what I'm trying to say here. Quote, Jesus never contradicted the old scripture. He's referring there to the Old Testament, of course. He always reaffirmed, upheld, and magnified it. In fact, he said, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That's Matthew 5.18. I am come not to destroy. Matthew 5.17. All right. Now let's see where we get. The Old Testament very plainly said, and this is a quotation, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Now, if you say, because the word on us, the Greek word for wine or grape juice, permitted it being intoxicating wine, if you say, well, that means he turned it into intoxicating wine, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ pulling the curse of Almighty God down on his own head. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. If you say it means intoxicating wine, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ utterly ignoring the plain, emphatic warning of the Old Testament. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, and at last it biteth like a servant and stingeth like an adder. Am I right about it? If you say that it is intoxicating wine simply because the Greek word on us would permit that interpretation, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ denying, abrogating, and destroying the plain, unvarnished admonition, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. Such a position is wholly untenable, and I will stand anywhere before any group on the top side of God's earth and say, No, sir, my Lord did not turn water into intoxicating wine, and the Bible does not teach that he did. Now, you can take that and do with it whatever you want, but I agree 100% with what he says. If the Bible tells us to look not upon the wine whenever it is red and moveth in the cup, speaking about fermentation, that's very clear. It says don't look upon it. It says don't give it to your to your neighbor then what else, what other deduction can you arrive at when you turn around and say that what the Lord provided for them there at the marriage feast was, was fermented wine? You would have him violating the same scriptures that, uh, that, w- that was just mentioned. Now, number six, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and understand all six of these are just quotations from what I've heard men say, and so I just jotted down the six that came to my mind. And uh, they say, since Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper of the Passover, He must have used fermented wine. Davis Huckabee, in writing his book several years ago, and, and he, he was one of these men with a brilliant mind and and he is a stickler for details, and he did a lot of research. And, and he said, the reader will probably be amazed, as was this writer, to learn that fermented wine was never a part of the Passover celebration by divine command or example. 
that the Jews used fermented wine in their perverted celebration of the Passover may or may not be true, but this in no way proves that it was used by Jesus. Now, so many times we've heard that, well, because they used fermented wine in the in the Old Testament Passover, you know, it must be okay. But again, the Bible does not anywhere imply that they were to use a fermented wine in the Passover. Again, they're to use the fruit of the vine, a wine, call it wine. I don't have any problem calling it wine because, as I said before, that can refer to fermented wine or the pure the pure blood of the grape to be determined by the context. Now, let's just sum it up. Jesus says it's the fruit of the vine. He could have used the word wine, but he didn't. He, he always used the, the phrase fruit of the vine. So here we are in the middle of this debate. Is it fermented? Is it unfermented? The fruit of the vine, whenever we look at it just as he stated it, that's obviously more specific because the juice is the, is the product of the vine. I've, I've never, I've never yet seen, you know, the grape being naturally fermented as you pick the grapes off of the vine and they're intoxicating. Fermentation is the work of man. Fruit. That's implying the product, what the vine produces. What does the vine produce? Now, let me tell you this. If the vine produced a, a fermented juice, I'd be all for that. I'd say, okay, let's do it. Let's go for it because that's the fruit, that's the product of the vine, right? But it doesn't. Now, where does that leave us? Okay. People can still debate and still argument, argue about it. Let's suppose, just for the, just for the sake of, of debate, I'll use that word. Let's suppose that, that, that the fermented wine could properly be called the fruit of the vine. I don't think it can. In my mind, that settled it couldn't. But let's just suppose, okay, it can. You can call fermented wine the fruit of the vine. So now the door's open. We're going to use the fruit of the vine, and we can use we can use either fermented wine or unfermented wine. Now, now let me let me ask you a question. In light of the fact that the Bible speaks about us being blameless, surely nobody could oppose using pure grape juice. I say they couldn't. Some do, by the way. I mean, they say we're totally out of line, we're totally wrong, that it's unscriptural to do it. They tell you that you can't even observe the Lord's Supper unless you're using a fermented wine. But I don't think anybody here is that foolish to go to that length and say that's that's the way it is. But there are a lot of folks that believe, okay, you know, it doesn't really make any difference. Just take your pick. I, I've... <laughs> I've gone to churches, I remember several years ago going to a church and whenever I met with the pulpit committee and this issue came up and uh, so I asked them, what about the, the Lord's Supper and the elements of the Lord's Supper and what have you and, and uh, 
One of the guys said, oh, we'll use whatever you want. doesn't make any difference. I said, well, it makes a difference to me. And I, I don't want you to use just whichever one you want just because that's the one that I prefer. I, I want you to use, you know, what you feel within your heart and know to be the truth of the Scriptures. And that ought to be what your choice is based on, not what I think or how I feel about it. Well, anyway, everything everything turned out all right. And before we observed the Lord's Supper, I taught what I believe. And the church not only embraced it, they put it in their constitution. And it's there to this day. But getting back to what I'm talking about, let's just assume, like that church did, and a lot of people, that it doesn't make any difference. You can use either one. Okay, should we not then, in light of the fact that we're called upon to be blameless, should we not then use the one that that removes blame from us, that takes us out. I mean, who, who could criticize us for that? But I want to guarantee you there's people that will criticize you in a heartbeat if you use fermented grape juice or actual wine. They'll, they'll criticize you. We say, why would they do that? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that the church is serving fermented wine to children Isn't that kind of against the law? That's what I thought, yeah. Well, how can we get by with that in the church? How can we get by with that in the church? Just because we say that, you know, well, it's a religious thing. You know, it's our religious conviction and that makes it okay. Well... Boy, that opened the door for a lot of different things being okay then. The Mormons might have a pretty good argument in some of their nonsensical things. If we're just going to base it on that, that the, that the authorities shouldn't bother us because it's a religious thing, it's our, our conviction that this is what we ought to do, and so that makes it right. No, it doesn't make it right. And I'll tell you another thing, whenever it comes down to this matter... And I've heard people say, oh, well, whenever God saves you, you know, whenever the Lord saves you, He takes all of that desire away and you don't have to worry about it. Don't you kid yourself. You have no idea what a struggle I went through after I got saved trying to stay out of the bars. I'd drive down the road and go by those same honky-tonks where I nearly lived in those things day and night. And, and, and I, you cannot believe how difficult it was to turn my eyes away and to stay on the road and not turn in. Not only, not only that, but how difficult it was when I was out of town on business trips and things of that nature not to, you know, it'd be real easy to get me a half a pint of vodka that, you know, you can't even taste that stuff. And I'm, you know, you, you can't smell it, I mean, and stick it in my briefcase and, you know, put a little in my, Coke or Seven Up or whatever, and nobody'd ever know about it or anything. And and for me to be in the presence of somebody else drinking was a real problem. It was a great temptation to me. I I just I just cannot, in a good conscience, serve something that is alcoholic in nature in worshiping the Lord to people sitting there in the congregation that God has delivered from that awful demon of drink. How can I set that before them 
and tell them, well, you ought to be strong enough to resist the temptation. Well, they ought to be, but that doesn't mean they are. Some of you have heard me say before, and I'm going to repeat it, just trying to make a point. To this very day, uh, there is absolutely nothing on this earth that tastes better to me than beer. Nothing. I could sit, I could drink beer until I just fell over in a stupor. Hot, cold, doesn't make any difference. That, to me, is just... To this day, that... Listen, since the day I was saved, that, that, that taste has never gone away. That's like saying, well, if you get saved, you, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't like ribeye steak any longer because it'll make you fat. You know, so the Lord ought to automatically take away the desire for that, that ring of fat and that ribeye steak and it's kind of charred and you, no, I like that. Now, just because I like beer doesn't mean I've got a right to drink beer. So, let me sum all of this up. I've got to hurry. I'm, let's get right down then to just trying to ascertain the, the meaning. And the meaning of the fruit of the vine is evident. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament. And that idea of His blood has been with us since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and the coats of skin were provided to cover their nakedness. And the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Aren't you glad that Jesus shed His blood for you? It's through His blood we have redemption. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the great sacrifice that He made for us. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Now listen carefully, and I'm through. Far more important than trying to win this debate about the elements of the Lord's Supper is this. Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Have you trusted Him as your Lord and Savior? You see, you can win the debate and lose your soul. In other words, you can win the debate and still die and go to hell. Being right about the Lord's Supper doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't make you saved. In other words, we can have all of our theology correct. We can be correct in our doctrine. We can be ever so orthodox and have all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. We believe all of the right things, but if we never receive Christ as our Savior, it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying the elements of the Lord's Supper don't matter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they are actually of secondary importance as to what they represent. And that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, His bruised body, His shed blood for our sins. So, in case you haven't figured it out, we, during the whole time that I've been here of a quarter of a century now, we've used the pure fruit of the vine, just like it is. That was not just my choice. That's what this church has always taught and always used. And that's what we used. Anyone expecting something different? Why, uh, they're going to be disappointed. And that's our reason for it. And I, I hope each and every one understands. All right, let's just leave it there. Let's stand and be dismissed by prayer.